This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. It's season four of Office Hours, and we're studying the book of Hebrews. The theme, Jesus is really better. Hebrews was most likely written in the mid-60s of the first century A.D. to a predominantly Jewish congregation that was being tempted to turn away from Christ back to the Old Covenant back to the types and shadows, and back to a rabbinical understanding of the Old Testament. We're in Hebrews chapter 3, and Joel Kim is with us as we continue our study of Hebrews. Joel is assistant professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. And before coming to Westminster, he served as a pastor in Los Angeles for a number of years. His doctoral research focuses on the history of the interpretation of Romans chapter 7, and he's co-editor of Always Reformed, Essays in Honor of W. Robert Godfrey, available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Joel, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. We're in chapter 3, and verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So he starts off with an indicative, a declarative, announcing who they are, what their status is, and then he asks something of them. He exhorts them. He encourages them. So let's talk about those two parts of this verse. Of this verse. So first he calls them holy brothers. In the original setting, what would that have meant? And what are the implications? Clearly, in terms of the literary setting that we have in chapter 3, in the previous section, he talked about these brothers and sisters being cleansed from their sinfulness, as well as being made right with God through the death of Jesus Christ. And so in terms of the continuing statement of the author of Hebrews, it's pointing out their new identity and new status. Similar to what Paul does in his own openings as well, often referring to the individuals in the church as saints. Not because they're perfect, because our perfection is not yet, nor is it because they're referring to some kind of ecclesiastical status, but simply from the perspective of God, through the death and blood of Christ Jesus our Lord, our standing before God has changed, and our identity before him is one of holiness before him. And so the writer here is addressing, or the pastor is addressing them, on the basis of their current profession of faith. Now, they're being tempted to turn away from that, but he's addressing them on the basis of what they confess to believe. That's all we can go by, really. We're not God, and we absolutely have no way of understanding the eternal destiny of the individual apart from their confession. And in this here, the assumption is that if the descriptions found in verse 14 through 18 in chapter 2 are true, then you are indeed a brother to Christ, sons and daughters of God, acceptable and holy before him in your status. Their confession is that they believe. That's right. They believe in Jesus Christ. And so the assumption of this language is we're talking to people who profess faith in Jesus and that and on the basis of that faith, are united by grace alone, that is God's free, undeserved favor alone, through faith alone, in Christ. And so on the basis of that status, he speaks to them as if they really are what they confess and profess to be. And then he calls them sharers of the heavenly calling. I think it's consistent with what he said before about holy brothers, because they both identify the newfound status of these individuals. So in Christ, there are individuals who are holy uh, brothers because of Jesus. They also share in his heavenly calling. And, And this heavenly calling may refer to the fact that God himself is actually calling 
the people from heaven, but it may also refer to the destiny to which that they're called. In fact, that their ultimate goal is heaven itself, where Christ is leading them. In the earlier chapter, it talked about the goal of their salvation is their glory, mm. and in that Christ is bringing them to where He actually is, and it's heaven itself. And here, what we seem to be talking about is their the new status yet again. Not only are they holy brothers, they're people on this. Journey home, if you can call it that. Journey to heaven, where Christ is seated, and your full identity is revealed and understood. And given what comes after this passage, beginning in verses seven and following, the invocation of Psalm ninety-five, that would seem to put them on a similar sort of footing as the Israelites who were in the midst of an exodus, a going out from one place and a going to somewhere else. It's a fairly common theme in the New Testament. Tying in the whole Exodus motif to the Christian life, we have been once enslaved. In this case, the, even the language of being enslaved to the fear of death, we're released from that. Now we're on our journey home, where it's flowing with milk and honey. That final place of rest. All these themes are going to come through in full throttle throughout the book of Hebrews. And so, therefore, those who are in this already in the not yet state of journey home really can be identified with the Old Testament Israelite and their Exodus journey. And it's not by chance that、uh, chapter three, verse seven, and on, all the way through the end of chapter four, chapter ninety-five of Psalms, Psalm ninety-five becomes a paradigm for how the Israelites were and how we ought to be. That is, on the one hand, it's a warning not to be like the Israelites in their unfaithfulness. At the same time, it's a hopeful declaration that one day you will enter into the kind of rest that was promised. So the identification of the present-day believers and the journey home to heaven with the Exodus of the Old Testament, I think, is exactly right on. And again, we're to consider Jesus. And then he goes on to qualify Jesus. Now he's described us as holy brothers and those who partake of a heavenly vocation. And then Jesus is. The apostle and high priest. Talk about those two offices, because usually when we say apostle, we think of Paul, we think of Peter, we think of John, but we don't think of Jesus. So this is an interesting way of describing Jesus. All of our attention, according to the author, must be focused on Jesus. He says, consider, think carefully, focus on, fix your eyes. Having grown up in the CR, the translation NIV always works here. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. This great contemplation upon Jesus is what's required and exhorted by the author. Hebrews, and as this focus gets drawn to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, he is referred to with these two titles: apostles and the high priest. And the high priest is not an unusual one, obviously, because we saw that in the previous chapter. It's almost like a link word, telling us that he's just continuing to describe who Jesus is, who is indeed the high priest here. And perhaps many of us are not surprised by the fact that whole of Hebrews then deals with the notion of Jesus as the high priest. I guess what's unusual, which is implied in your question, is the term. Terminology of an apostle, as such, it's true that technically, and it could be focused upon a certain number of individuals, most often associated with the twelve, in terms of those whom Jesus sent out into the world for the continuing declaration. But more broadly speaking, the word apostle simply means the sent. One and we ought not to be surprised that in the New Testament, that oftentimes Jesus is described, although not as explicitly as an apostle, but one who has been sent. And in fact, the next verse points out that Jesus is one who has been appointed by God. 
to fulfill what God had intended in his will in the first place. And so although no other writer of the New Testament calls Jesus an apostle like the author of Hebrews does, the implication is that that's what he is. He has been sent by God as a messenger of God to declare his redemption and salvation and his deliverance that has come, ironically, in him. He is the one who reveals the mystery that has been hidden all this time. And interestingly enough, to tie this back to the first chapter, God has sent other messengers previously who try to articulate to his people what his message of deliverance is. But Jesus is the one who is the sent one who declares with authority and power and permanently the message of God of his redemption and deliverance. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Can you talk briefly about what it means to call Jesus a high priest? What was the function, the role, the nature, the office of the high priest? I think last time we talked about the fact that there is a whole lot of sacrificial language taking place here. Sacrificial language involving not only bloodshed, animals brought in terms of the sacrifice itself, of the high priest and the temple even, of the place in which these sacrifices are given. The high priest's role, which was a rotating role in the first century, was to actually be a representative of God's people. So on the one hand, there's this notion of a bringing God's people before God for the forgiveness of their sins. He is the one who participates in the ritual of atonement by the animal and the blood that's been shed in order that the sins of people may be atoned for. And before the people of God, he's a representative of God to them bringing to them this declaration of pardon that they have now received. So here, it's the intermediary role that we have in the high priest. Now, what later on the author of Hebrews points out is that we've had a bunch of people who are high priests who play these roles, sometimes well, sometimes not so well. But one thing that's common to all those individuals is that their actions were impermanent. It's not once and for all. And so Christ later on comes back as the high priest, who comes and offers sacrifice on behalf of his people, as chapter 2, verse 9 talks about, once and for all. And what's intriguing is that when you think of the whole picture, he's not only the one who's offering the sacrifice on behalf of the people, he becomes the sacrifice that is a permanent sacrifice that requires no more sacrifice from this point on. One of the first places where the phrase high priest occurs is in Numbers 35, and it's in conjunction with a city of refuge, that uh, so long as the uh, high priest was alive, you were in jeopardy, starting in verse 25, and the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. And so everything relative, at least in this case, hinged on the life and the death of the high priest. The centrality of the key figures in the Israelite kingdom, of the king and the high priest, and of course the prophets of that time period, cannot be oversold. And the centrality of the priestly family as well as the priestly line is something that's emphasized throughout the Old and the New Testament. And everyone who's receiving this letter or this sermon, if you're a Jew and understood the whole cultic significance of the the temple and the sacrifices offered. This identification of Jesus with the high priest, which has a long history in the Israelite nation, it would have been immediate identification and understanding. As we go through the prophets, particularly into the minor prophets, the high priests are increasingly named and they seem to occur with more frequency. And we know that in the first century setting, the high priest was a most significant figure in the life of Israel because he sort of functioned as a de facto king 
too, which is interesting in light of the, of the kinds of things that Hebrews does, picking up from Psalm 110 in unifying the royal office with the priestly office, because prior to the first century, at least theoretically, the royal office and the priestly office are really two different offices. Here, we, we still have the political heads. I mean, no doubt that they exist. But in terms of the religious life of the Jews and the Second Temple Judaism, the high priest would have played a significant and visible role. And a political and, role And a political well. role for many of the... I mean, obviously you see that with the whole trial of Jesus as well. Yeah, exactly. And what the New Testament authors seem to pick up, not only in Hebrews, but elsewhere as well, of identifying Jesus with the high priest. I mean, for instance, when Jesus heals the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, he takes a pause after her healing, despite the fact that he knows that power has gone out from him. And he declares in front of all that she's been healed, a woman who's been outcast now for 12 years because of her illness. That's a declaratory role reserved for a high priest who is able to declare other people officially that a person is now clean. This notion of Christ being the high priest is something that's picked up by the author of Hebrews and other authors as well. That's something that's visual, tangible, central to the understanding of the Old Testament and its practice for many of the first century Jews. And so its significance in terms of its role that it plays in Hebrews is not surprising. Let's go on to verse 2 and following. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. And so now he begins to work again on this contrast between Jesus and Moses. What's going on here? He brings in Moses, a figure that everyone would have known. And not only that, a figure who is identified with his faithfulness, as Numbers twelve seven points out that God declares him to be faithful in his house. In fact, the whole of chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 can be seen as as almost like an exposition of the discussion of Moses being faithful to the house because it brings up all the elements found there. All of Israel rebelled against God. Aaron and Miriam rebelled against God. But Moses amongst them was faithful in the household. And, and I think that's what brings up this discussion because here up to this point in time, Jesus as the high priest, Jesus is this important figure, someone who is faithful and merciful has been given. But now he's giving an illustration. I think illustrations are fairly common. We talked briefly earlier about Psalm 95 as a paradigm, and now we have an individual being brought forth in this discussion. Again, uh, a figure from Exodus as well, who represents the ideals for a lot of the Jews. Scripture's description of him is identical to what the author himself now chooses to describe Jesus with. And in that, uh, one thing that we're coming to recognize is that Moses is this important, great figure, but in contrast... He's pointing out that Jesus is better, not as a criticism of Moses, but simply Moses was great, but Jesus is greater. He does this with everyone. I mean, not only institutions, temple, sacrifice, high priest, but uh, Moses and Joshua, all these figures are now mentioned, simply saying Jesus is better than them all. We might not appreciate entirely how shocking this language about Moses might have been. Give us a sense of how Moses was viewed by the rabbis in the first century. For example, was Moses able to sin, according to the rabbis? The study on these things are different in in a variety of places. One thing we can say is the fact that Moses was a man of high honor, highly esteemed, highly revered. We can also say that because Moses was a man who saw God face to face and his face shone with his glory, and part of the lore of Moses rises because of that particular happening where he himself saw and reflected God's glory and radiated the glory of God. And so here, Moses, we can say with fair bit of confidence that here is a figure understood by many of the Jews and its teachings to be highly revered, highly respected, 
highly honored in terms of how he might have been viewed in the first century. Probably higher in esteem than almost anybody in the history of redemption, with the possible exception of Abraham. Possible exception of Abraham and perhaps even David, depending on yeah. uh, how one might view some of those elements. And those three figures would have been the most significant figures in the mind of a first century Jew. I think that's a fair statement to make in terms of the place of Moses in the imaginations of those who are practicing and faithful Jews. I remember reading the Talmud and looking at the various rabbis commenting on Moses in Exodus and the uh, failure to circumcise uh, his son. And it was interesting that the rabbis were at great pains to excuse Moses from any fault because they knew a priori that Moses or Moshe could not have done anything wrong, even if the text seemed to suggest that Moses had done something wrong. I guess I'm reading some of this language against that kind of background. I mean, it's possible but I think the Talmudic literature is so big and vast, I'm going to have to claim ignorance on it in the first place. Aside from the fact that they're borrowing much from the oral traditions of the time anyways, and it goes beyond their, I think, exegetical understanding of the text, as to what was handed down about Moses. I mean, we see some apocryphal literature and discussions of Moses and the assumption of Moses and others, but how much of that we could uh, import into this passage, I'm not sure. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 8474 Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. It is difficult to know how to relate exactly what we find in the Talmud to what people were thinking in the first century, because some of the material in the Talmud is later than what was necessarily happening in the first century. But certainly we know that there was the highest view of Moses. Absolutely no doubt. And in fact, this argument wouldn't make sense unless that was the case, because it's not a criticism of Moses. He's not saying that Moses is bad. He assumes that Moses is good and revered, but Jesus is better. And that's huge. Yep. I think so. If you're really going to honor Moses properly, you need to do what Moses did, and that is you need to honor Jesus well, and yeah. see him for what he is. According to the author here at the end of verse 5 in particular, where he was talking about the faithfulness of Moses, again, going back to the description found in Numbers, but he clarifies that by saying, as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. His role was a intermediary. His role was a shadow. His role was a temporary role of one who testifies and witnesses to the future happening and teaching of Jesus Christ. And so the understanding would be here, according to Hebrews, is that Moses himself would not have understood himself to be something that's permanent and final, but that he was testifying to what is to come. Jesus is worthy, Hebrews 3.3 3 says, of more glory. Right. And remember, Moses is the one 
one who went into the tabernacle and who came out radiating the glory of God. And Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. We might not think that way in our culture, so help us understand this. I think the assumed dictum here, that adage that everyone agrees with, is the fact that the builder of the house has more honor than the house, the product itself, because it came out of the imagination as well as the work of the builder himself. Now, what's assumed here is that in applying to Moses, that Moses a part of the house in this equation and correspondences. And as a member of the house, he stands out because he's a man of great honor and worthy of that honor. But the one who built the house, that is, house in which Moses belongs, is actually worthy of greater honor. And as he goes on to point out, the one who built all these things is God. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God, verse 4 says, parenthetically, just to make sure we understand. Here, at the end of the day, house is great, but the one who builds it is greater. Moses is great, but he's only part of the house. And the one who lifted him up and built him up is God. And the one who builds it is greater than that. Verse 5 stipulates exactly what Moses' role was to testify to the things that were spoken later. So he was a servant, and his role as servant was to testify. So I'd like to summarize this section of Hebrews by saying, Moses works for Jesus. I think that's very fair to say. I mean, for some who might wonder, is it okay for us to identify the house, which could be identified with the temple or the future rest, with the church in this case and the people? Here in verse 6, he goes on to point out, we are his house. I mean, that's how he describes it. It's a group of people, God's people in that particular setting. And in that, one thing we're coming to recognize is that Moses is a big gun in that household. You know, he's a big fish in a small pond, if we can call it that. But at the end of the day, he's a servant, as you point out, and he is working for Jesus, I think is a very fair way to say, simply saying that he's not the final one. I think the one who identified and understood this very well in the New Testament is John the Baptist. When questioners came up and questioning him as to what his identity is, he simply says, I am not he. I mean, that is the basic message that he wants to give. And ultimately, what he points out is that he's a mere signpost. You know, a signpost has to be clear. It doesn't have to be clean. It doesn't even have to be, you know, the prettiest signpost in terms of its color or shape. It simply has to do its role. And what I think what the Hebrews author is pointing out is that Moses was a signpost, signpost of the one who is faithful to come. And his job was to merely point to that individual to come. And he says the things that were to be spoken later. That's right. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. That picks up on some imagery from the ancient world that is a little bit different than our culture. When he invokes God as sort of owner, and then now Christ as son in the house, he's implying things and assuming things that, again, we might not. Well, here, obviously, the prepositional phrase is being used here to describe the respective roles. I mean, Moses was faithful in God's household, and as it points out, as a servant. But in contrast, Christ is faithful, exact same phrase, in this case, over God's house as a son. And here, two descriptions have changed between Moses and Jesus. On the one hand, in terms of its relationship to this house, this people of God has changed. On the one hand, you have someone who is in the midst of it Mm. as a house. The other, someone who is over it. 
in terms of his authority over it. And part of the reason why that's even possible is because of their identity, as described for us, where Moses is identified as a servant. At the end of the day, his destiny as well as his responsibility is given. That is, it's derived. It's something that has been placed upon him. You are subjected to someone else's dictates. Whereas Jesus' authority is is the son whose authority is identified with the owner and the father, for that matter. It's equal and identical. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. When the son speaks in a household in the first century, and now this is presumably the firstborn son, the honored son, when he speaks, the father speaks. This is an authoritative office in a kind of miniature society, right? So this is a different way of thinking about family and social roles. Steve likes to talk about the pater familias, right? And so there's a kind of society occurring in the house, which is a larger household of individuals, not just a building, right? A four-bedroom, three-bath house. We're talking about really a group of people. And then relative to this group of people, you have the father, who is the, in a sense, principal authority, and then the son, who represents that principal authority, and then Moses is below that. Am I getting that right? I think you're right. I, I think part of the sense that we lose in the contemporary times is that the concept of house and households have changed. We are pro- to think of house primarily as a building, as you point out, or for that matter, a household as primarily a nucleus family of father and mother and children. And here we're talking about an extended family, It's right? an extended family. And the relationships are quite different, too. In our society where independence is such a cherished commodity, even between the father and son figure or parents and children, this kind of space and independence of the individual is much more heralded than anything else. I happen to be Korean-American. And what that means is simply I was born in Korea, raised in the States, but many of our cultural norms and baggage is carried over to our days. And for us, not only the extended family, but the responsibility within the family is very much intact. So let me give you one example is, for instance, I'm a family of five siblings. So I'm the oldest boy of three girls and two boys. But I remember being raised, oftentimes being reminded from my father that here, when we all grow up and all have families, and when we move on, referring to himself and my mom, you have the responsibility of bringing the family together. You have the responsibility of taking care of your siblings. And this is not because I'm the oldest. I happen to be the oldest boy. Hmm. And this kind of mentality of corporate identity right? That my identity is directly related to someone else's identity is something that is very much common in the first century versus our modern century. And this is why the whole notion of oikos and oikonomia and this family nature of the first century that Paul refers to and others refer to become such a visceral and tangible example. And so here, when he points out, he's making the distinction between a servant who is part of the household economy, but yet in his standing is far less than the son. And the son speaks on behalf of the father, is identified with the father. The son is family in the sense that who he is, is the father. Who the father is, is represented in the son. I think the whole of New Testament assumes this fact. And this is why, as we're talking about the rest motif coming up in chapters 3 and 4, in chapter 11 of Matthew, Jesus talks about and invites people into rest. Come who are weary and tired, I will give you rest. Right before that statement, most people forget that he he explains why that invitation is significant because he simply points out that God chose to reveal himself to those who are childlike, not childish, childlike, and through the Son. 
and in this case, himself. And whatever he says is what the Father says. Whatever the Father says is what he says. There's an identification of authority here. And only then he comes out with this invitation to say, come who are weary and tired, I will give you rest. The authority and the power of that statement is true because he speaks for the Father. And I think the same thing can be said here, that there is a dramatic contrast made between the servant and the son. And in this case, the son represents the Father wholly, unlike the servant, who is someone who is directed by the builder himself. And the servant's job was to point to the son. So if you would know the Father, you must know the son. Now, verse 6, whose house we are, if we hold fast, hold on to the boldness, is one way of translating that noun, and the boast of hope. What do we do with that conditional? Whose house we are, if we hold on to? As readers of the New Testament, we recognize that the New Testament describes faith differently. What I mean by this is that there is recognition, especially by the author of Hebrews as well, that there are seemingly genuine faith that turns out not to be the case. That there are people who, for a time, taste the goodness of the Lord, but their faith is ultimately borne out not to be genuine. It's temporary. I mean, we go back to the whole uh, parable of the sower, or you can call it parable of the seeds, where you have these seeds fallen on rocky soil or thorny soil, which for a time seems to exhibit all the characteristics of those who have genuine faith, but turn out that that's not the case. And what we understand to be true is that for the author of Hebrews here, genuine Real faith must endure, persevere, and hope. And the point that he seems to point out here is not that he's sending up a conditional statement. It's not that endurance or perseverance or hope that he speaks of here that ultimately produces life or their belongingness to this household. But simply, if you belong, what would characterize that life and belongingness will be endurance and confidence and hope. So it's less about cause, it's about evidence. It's a difference between is and because. That, I, I think that's exactly right. And so if indeed you belong... You know, there's a lot of controversy over chapter 6 and some of those who've tasted the goodness of the Spirit, but yet don't persevere. Uh, At least it's a warning in saying that that's true. And later on in chapter 3 as well, he warns against how the Israelites were using, again, Psalm 95 as a paradigm. And the simple point is, characteristics of faith is endurance and hope and confidence. And those who have faith in Christ, and if that faith is real, those things will be exhibited. Not that those things will be the thing that guarantees or produces in us or causes us to belong to Christ in this way. And just as a way of echoing the importance of getting this relationship right, he does say that we have a boldness, is one way of translating that, that noun, or confidence, and boast. So we currently have those things. And if it was conditional upon our performance, then we couldn't possibly have either confidence or boasting. Again, to go back to the major point that he's making in verses 1 through 6 is the fact that we need to focus on Christ, who's faithful. If there's a controlling issue here he's trying to drive towards is the fact that Christ is faithful. Now, we can talk all we want about our faithfulness, our lack of faithfulness, etc. But at the end of the day, we are to walk away with the notion that Here, Christ is faithful and merciful to his people. And indeed, what we are to apply from this is to say we are to look and consider him, for he has been our model in that faithfulness. But even more so, we can be faithful, not because of ourselves, but because Christ is faithful to us. And through him, we remain confident and we remain hopeful in our lives. 
Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.